This is Unfractured. I'm Connor Cyrus. Today we're talking about allyship, especially what it means to be an ally to BIPOC. I've decided to do things a little differently for this discussion. I've created two panels, one of white Vermonters and the other of BIPOC Vermonters. The goal is that people can speak freely in a safe space and neither group will hear what the other is saying. Later this summer, we hope to revisit with members of each panel and hear their responses to what's said today. But we start with three white Vermonters who call themselves allies. We have Sue McCormick, founder of Creative Discourse. We also have Addie Lentzner, a senior at Arlington Memorial High School in Bennington and a representative of the Vermont Student Anti-Racism Network. And finally, Life Ligueros, a professional development coordinator and a member of the Waterbury Anti-Racism Coalition. Addie, I'm going to start with you. What's your definition of an ally and how are you helping to promote that? Yeah, so I think <laughs> an ally is, I think there's a big definition and there are a lot of different components to it. Um, but I think firstly is being an ally is an active thing. Like it's not, it's not something you can be passive about. Like an ally can't, an ally, if you think of like in a war, like an ally isn't there saying, come on, you can do it. No, they're providing troops. They're, you know, providing money, whatever. Um, it's really an active thing. Um, and I think another, a big part of being an ally is educating oneself. Um, and there's this analogy that I heard the other day that really explained it well for me. Um, is that like, you know, sometimes horses wear those blinders on the side of their head so they can only see what's in front of them. Um, so that happens a lot of times, especially with white people who just see straight ahead of them, you know, one part of the issue and aren't willing to take those blinders off and see the whole issue of racism. And so, you know, maybe they're willing to be be an ally and and be support, but they aren't willing to acknowledge um, their own whiteness. Um, so I think education is a really important part of being an ally as well, and then educating others. So I'm curious, what qualities or steps are necessary in order to be a good ally? Well, I appreciate that question. And I really appreciate what Addie was saying. I think, you know, for me, one of the most important qualities is humility, just the awareness that we don't have the answers and the willing, the willingness, like Addie said, to really listen to Black and Indigenous people of color, to believe their experiences, to step back so that they can step forward. And for us white people who are used to being the quote unquote normal or dominant people, we're very used to centering ourselves. We're very used to having it be all about us. And so it takes a lot of practice to step back so that other people can step forward. I think another quality that's really needed is courage. Now, as a BIPOC person myself, you know, I, I hear this and I hear what everybody on this panel is saying. And part of me rolls my eyes because these are all things that us in the BIPOC community have heard. We know it takes courage. We know that this is tough work. And so to your point on courage at life, I want to ask you, how do you tell people to find courage and what are you telling people that face adversity in this time so they continue to fight the fight to instill the trust of the BIPOC community? I think that that goes back to working in community and in uh, relationship, 
across generations and across um, racial differences that um, I've become more and more convinced that this work happens um, on small scale, that, you know, it takes white folks to be doing the self-work constantly and forever, um, but working together to muddle our way through, um, because a lot of it is very uh, paradoxical. Can you explain what you mean by paradoxical? Um, yeah, just that there's, there's like inherent contradictions, you know, for, from, from my, um, positionality as a, as a white male, for example, I'm working to, you know, disrupt a system that accrues me advantages and tells me and tells others that I should be, you know, a leader and that I should, you know, be centered and, you know, even being on the show today, it, I had to think about it because um, that stuff just kind of happens naturally in our society. But we're trying to create different ways of being together and different ways of existing collectively. And so it's the only way to work through and to muddle through is with other people. So, you know, with the Waterbury Area Anti-Racism Coalition, I'm working with, you know, good friends in my community and, you know, amazing um, leaders, um, you know, many of them people of color like um, Maroni Minter, Marlena Fishman, Chiomi McKibben. And, you know, we're constantly having these conversations, like what makes sense in this case? Who's going to step forward? Who's going to say what? What's what makes sense strategically? How are you experiencing this? How am I experiencing this? And there's just there's no real playbook for how to work together. I think as, you know, Sue and Addie have pointed out, like listening to people of the global majority and trying to understand strategies that have existed and that have been used over time, but how we all work together on this, how white folks um, are involved in this work is very complicated and we can only figure it out together. And to your first question, like when we do that, when we can work together, not just on the hard stuff, but also having fun, um, it's that's what sustains the work. And that's what helps us understand, like, actually, there is another way of being. We can create it first just with, you know, the 10 of us in this room or the 100 of us in this organization that are going to have our party for our first year anniversary. And then how are we going to go out and try to transform systems and policies as well? So um, I really think that that collective piece is the key. So is there courage that you, or is there advice for courage that you can give on an individual level? Because you have somebody like Addie who's in high school who I presume takes a lot of courage to step up and, you know, fight racism. So what advice do you have for people that aren't able to collect that might be in rural Vermont, but still see problems of allyship? I mean, I really do think that um, part of the idea here is that we are creating new identities and whatever you call them. I mean, allyship is not my favorite term. Like I love um, what uh, Bettina Love has called co-conspiratorship. Um, you know, we're in this together and trying to understand that, you know, I wasn't, I didn't uh, choose to be born white or male or cisgendered. I need to understand the history of those identities and the oppression that's associated with them. But how can I forge a path to try to do something more positive and um, step by step, bit by bit, getting the, the fulfillment that comes with that 
and again, working with others being the key, um, that that makes it worth the risk and the sacrifice. This is Unfractured. Right now, we're discussing allyship with white Vermonters. We have Sue McCormick, Addie Lentzner, and Life Ligeros. Addie, I want to get your opinion on this. What do you think the, we'll call them rules are, when it comes to when to step in and when not to step in as an ally? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, well, I think I'll go back to that thing when when you're asking when to step in and when not to step in, that thing of listening. Um, you know, it's not up to me. It's not up to to white people necessarily to, to say when to step in. It needs to be listening um, to others and seeing when it's necessary and when that's that support and allyship is desired. Um, but I also think in a way, and, and maybe this is kind of an avenue to find that courage, is just that understanding the history of oppression in this country and understanding um, the identity of being a white person and understanding white supremacy and understanding what that means today. And that provides a sort of push to why this work is so necessary um, and why this allyship is is really needed. Um, just recognizing that like it shouldn't have to be BIPOC people just doing this work and doing this work alone. If there was no, if the, if there wouldn't be racism if there weren't white people who were perpetuating it and so white people sort of have a unique obligation um to do something and I can also I I just want to take a moment to say like Connor I can totally understand how this can be like oh you know just just white people saying they they have this obligation they're going to do something but are they actually going to um so I think that's also knowing that is a a sense of finding courage as well, that this is just so necessary. Um, And if we really want to fight racism um, as allies, we have to step up and make radical change, whatever that looks like for us. It's really, um, I guess, I guess a responsibility and that bestows a sort of courage, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Because, you know, I think I speak for a lot of BIPOC, especially black people, that these last, you know, 12, 13 months have been exhausting, especially in these white spaces to continue to educate people. So, um, Sue, how do you respond to that? And what's your take on being able to find courage in such white spaces as an ally? Yeah, thanks, Connor. Well, I just love what uh, Life was saying about being in community with each other, with other white people doing this work. And I'd love to hear more about Addie's community of people that she's working with, Um, you know, and um, also being in community with people of color as well. And I know, uh, Connor, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I've just been thinking about, you know, the eye roll too. (laughs) Um, And uh, like I, I, that makes so much sense to me. You know, I mean, our history is a history of just broken promises and it's a history of white people, you know, showing up for a while and then kind of walking away or letting people down when the going gets rough. And so, you know, I think I've just been so privileged to be working with some amazing um, colleagues who are BIPOC and some, also some amazing white uh, colleagues as well. And I, you know, it's just showing up when my bike pot colleagues 
uh, are exhausted, I just try to step in, you know, and keep things going forward until they're able to come back in. Life, I'm curious, how do you as an ally um, stop or call out performative activism and performative allyship? I mean, that's a great question. You know, I, I thought it was really interesting um, listening to one of the earlier shows in this series where, where Stefan Gillum just said, yeah, this show is actually performative in a way. Um, and I, that kind of helped me understand, like, it's not a either or. Like, there's going to be some performative aspects to a lot of the things we do, just that's the no- nature of society. But um, I think that, as Sue said, um, just being really clear about constantly taking stock of what are we actually accomplishing? What are we changing that's going to make an impact? And part of that, the way it can be um, measured is what are white folks given up? Where is the risk and where is the sacrifice? And me personally, as a white male, if I'm not taking risks, if I'm not um, pushing hard enough to um cause pushback, then I know that I can go harder and farther. Addie, is there a way to, in your, in your view, is there a way to call out performative activism on social media without being toxic? Well, I think one, um, one really important thing to keep in mind when calling something out is really making sure to also be calling in and to be educating and to be really explaining the reasons, you know, behind why something is performative um, because it might just be the case of someone is just uh, misunderstanding or just doesn't know why what they're doing is wrong. I, Connor, I, I actually have a quick story about that in, in our community um, at the beginning of Pride Month, somebody posted on Facebook, one of our community pages, uh, hey, post pictures of your Pride gear, happy Pride Month. And all these people started posting like rainbow t-shirts and flags and cups and everything. And it, it was really rubbing me the wrong way. And um, so I was able to just in a nice way, make a post saying, um, you know, I don't have much pride gear, but my wife and I are really happy that we can live openly in our community with love and support. And I think that that is an example of, you know, like I didn't call people out, but I just maybe helped them think a little bit differently about what they were doing. And I do think that um, some of the performative stuff can be a stepping stone for more serious action. And so I do think trying to call people in in those spaces can be helpful. Thank you, Sue McCormick, founder of Creative Discourse. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Connor. Addie Lentzner, a high school senior at Arlington Memorial High School and student representative with the Vermont Anti-Racism Network. Addie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Connor. And Life Lagueros, a professional development coordinator from Central Vermont. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Coming up, we have a group of BIPOC Vermonters who have not heard this conversation but are going to tell us what they need from allies and what still needs to be done to create a more inclusive Vermont. I'm Connor Cyrus. This is Unfractured.
I'm Connor Cyrus. You're listening to Unfractured. We just heard from three white Vermonters who shared their experiences of being allies. Now we welcome three BIPOC Vermonters to discuss allyship in their eyes. They didn't hear the previous conversation, but will have a chance to respond later this summer. This conversation is a BIPOC-only space. So now we have three BIPOC individuals that all live here in Vermont. Let's start with Chiomi McKibben. Chiomi, will you please tell me a little bit about yourself and how you identify? Um, Yes. First, I just want to say I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you for having me. This is my first time on the radio, so I'm nervous. Um, We can cut that out. Sorry. Um, I am... I am um, born and raised in California. My mom's side of the family is Japanese and my dad's side is Caucasian. So I'm mixed race. Um, and I moved to Vermont in 2016. I got done with graduate school um, and wanted a change from just being born and raised in California. And I ended up in Vermont. Um, I'm an artist and I currently work um, at one of the universities in the state. Thank you. Pooja Gupta Senning. Tell me a little bit about you and how you identify. Sure. Thank you, Connor, for having me. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I identify as a woman, a mother, an Indian American, and a psychotherapist and a Vermonter since 2009. Awesome. And then finally, last but not least, my colleague, Myra Flynn. Myra, tell me about yourself and how you identify. Hi, Connor. I am a VPR producer, a mother, a musician, and also ethnically, I am a Black identifying biracial woman. Thank you. Pooja, I want to start with you. And this is a conversation about allyship. And I think in order to have these conversations, we have to understand the structure in which BIPOC feel they need or um, allies are created. So And for this conversation, I would like for you to start by just what does racism look like to you and here in Vermont? Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, I think that there's this idea that racism is like in the United States, in Vermont, is white supremacy, is that concept of white supremacy. And when we think of white supremacy, it brings up the KKK and and um the very extreme ideas of of that racism. And what I really want people to know, and when I think about racism, I think about white body supremacy. That notion that the white body is supreme, not necessarily some extreme ideas that are super duper duper violent and, um, and brutal, but just this concept that when you when you're a white person, a white body, that that is the norm, that you represent potentially all people. But for example, me as a brown body person, brown body woman, that I am a brown woman doing eating breakfast. And then a white person eating breakfast is just a person eating breakfast. So it's this very insidious idea that at any given moment in time, I am an identity or an intersection of an identi- of identities And a white person with this white body supremacy that is the version that most people um, experience in Vermont is they're just themselves. They're just Kathy or Susie or Frank. Chiomi, how, what does racism look like for you here in Vermont? That's a great question. So I I grew up in the California Bay area and which is, um, you know, surrounded by a lot of diversity 
um, a huge Asian population. And when I moved to Vermont, I had never been so aware of my own ethnicity before until I came here. And I think part of it was dealing with the the automatic assumption that I can't be from, I must be visiting here. I don't actually live here. I don't pay taxes here. I don't work here. Or the automatic assumption that I'm an international student who's studying here, um, not just someone who's living their life in Vermont. And there's also this constant um, pressure or, you know, with my name, people are always asking, what does your name mean? How do you spell it? And that's the first thing people ask me is, how do you spell your name? And I, I kind of just want to pass around business cards with people, like with a phonetic spelling of my name and to say, I don't know what it means. I, I'm sorry. I, you know, it's this pressure that I'm supposed to know, know these things. Um, and, and just having that at the forefront of all my communications with people I meet. I think a lot of BIPOC will resonate with what, I think it'll resonate what you just said with a lot of BIPOC here, because I think that most of us have, had that interaction of somebody making an assumption that we are not from here. And as we know from history and textbooks and real history, that that's not the case. So Pooja, I'm curious with all of this racism that we have all identified that is here in Vermont, what does allyship look like and what do you want from allies? I think first off, admitting that everybody in Vermont, everybody in the United States, including the people who want to be allies, we're all racist. BIPOC people are racist. It is in our blood because we've absorbed it through our media, through our culture, through our communities, these interactions we're talking about. So just admitting that it's, it's a thing and it's already existing. So that in and of itself is huge. And, and that it's not, um, and that, that it's common, you know, a little, it's like having a little spinach in your teeth. It's not that big a deal. You make a racist comment. It's like, oh, dude, you got a little, I got a little racism in your teeth. You know, you kind of need to get it out and you admit it and then move through it. But you don't want to be sitting there with spinach in your teeth all day long. And that's what you're doing because you're afraid of admitting that it's there. So I think just admitting that it happens all the time, comments, the, the thoughts that are racist, this stuff happens and it's okay. We've been, we've been raised to have racist beliefs. I think about allies, um, the main thing I think allies can do is move through their racist beliefs, their trauma responses that are associated with racism and to actually become in a felt sense aware that they exist in one's body exist in your body and then to follow that trailhead and to really get curious about your own experience so questioning your own trauma response and I say a trauma response because for the white ally for the white body person experiencing witnessing racism whether the brutal version or the subtle version is traumatic does that include microaggressions? Yes, definitely includes microaggressions. So I'm just kind of curious, how is that if white people are unaware that they have spinach in their teeth, you know, to, you know, to use that metaphor, um, if they don't know that it's there, then how do they know to fix it? How are the, like, where's the trauma in, in not knowing? That's a great question, Connor. <laughs> I think the trauma in not knowing is it's unconscious. And I think that it's holding both white people back and it's definitely holding BIPOC people back. 
I think that being voluntarily putting yourself in spaces, surrounding yourself with other people who are willing to talk about these things will help you uncover your unconscious beliefs. But these beliefs exist because we know through metrics and through people's stories that the BIPOC experience is significantly uh, marginalized compared to the advantaged experience of having white body privilege. Myra, I want to go to you and get your take on all of this. What does allyship look like to you? Oh, goodness. Um, well, yeah, Pooja, I'm actually going to disagree with you on something. Whoa. Um, I actually don't think that BIPOC people can be racist. I think that everyone is biased. And I do think that there's colorism, which is nuanced and something that I, I, I'm actually not quite sure if Vermont is super familiar with that term. Um, but I think that racism is a st- systemic thing that has um, you know, deep European roots and deep systemic roots here in America that is definitely top down from white people. Um, and so I do think that like, you know, recognizing that I think the spinach and the teeth analogy is brilliant because what it really points to is like, you're going to make a mistake. So, you know, it's up to you if, if the mistake that you make is going to be so traumatic that your flight or fight response is going to kick in, that you're either going to become more hateful or totally run from the whole thing. But the idea is we make mistakes as mothers, we make mistakes as people, we make mistakes as teachers, we make mistakes in our job. And the whole thing about adulthood is to figure out how to handle that with grace, right? So I'd say if you do have a moment where you do make like a huge mistake, then just go with it, right? Like figure out a way to do that thing gracefully. Um, I also think like when I think of an ally, I think about somebody who has compassion for, for me, my situation and for themselves and their situation. Um, I've seen a few instances where, you know, some of the white folks who are kind of claiming to be allies for the BIPOC community are attacking one another. Um, and it's just, you know, I got a speeding ticket on the way to yoga once. And it reminds me of that. It's like, this is the antithesis of yoga that you're like getting a speed, you're rushing to get there and you're like getting a speeding ticket on the way. So I think about like doing this anti-racist work in a similar way. Like we're trying to, take, we're trying to normalize. It's all a fight towards normal. It's all a fight towards everybody having, um, you know, black lives, black leisure, black joy, black normalcy, black averageness. Shoot. I want a day of black mediocrity. Right. So it's all a fight towards normal. And if we're going to just be uh, trying to fight, violence with more violence towards one another, that's not what I consider to be an ally. Um, You know, as an ally, you have to have as much patience and respect in your reactiveness and grace in your reactiveness to these situations as BIPOC people have had to have their whole lives. I'm curious, what do you think, or how would you like to see allies respond to criticism? You know, I think that there's, you know, you talk about you don't want to see this inward fighting and that there needs to be a collective. So what's the response to a critique that might not be uh, what people want to hear, especially the allies? I don't know if there's um, if there's a collective or that I'm like against inward fighting. I'm I'm really just trying to say I don't think it's helpful to be like, you know, for instance, the Black Lives Matter um, marches that were happening in L.A., 
you know, uh, some white folks were spray painting Black Lives Matter all over the buildings because they were just like so psyched about Black Lives Matter. Meanwhile, all the Black people were getting arrested for the spray painting. So like, it's not super helpful. Um, What I would like to see is, you know, as much thoughtful, mindful, slow, patient conversations as we can have. And uh, what I would think if I, if I say, um, you know, hey, this actually isn't that cool and doesn't feel very good. Maybe you could learn how to phrase it a different way. Somebody just graciously saying, I heard you. I see you. I'm going to take that. Think about it. Take a moment. Take a beat. And feel free to come back and and uh, disagree with me. Um, but the reactive defensiveness is, I think, what's really harmful or uh, reacting in, in, in a way that really is a white supremacist reaction um you know either we're going to check a box and deal with it like immediately and then it's done and i can wash my hands of it or i'm going to as has historically has already been a problem uprise get very very violent and upset myself you know this work is is a slow untangling so um you know i don't think it can be done quickly yeah puja when we talk about allies and our white counterparts and white people in vermont um, expressing that they want to help uh, fight for equality, we run into the concept of a lot of performative activism. What, how do you see that resonate? Or do you see that resonate in Vermont? And if so, how? Well, I actually just wanted to say to Myra, thank you for pointing that out about that difference between racism and colorism. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, you know, I think that... Um, performative activism is kind of maybe like the initial steps that one gets one tries out like what does it mean for me as a white person for example to be an ally and how do I do that and what does it look like I also think that the seed of the intention whether that intention is really pure and true if you keep on following that trailhead so if the intention is to be a real true ally and you and you start out, you're kind of not really sure what to do and it might be performative, but if you keep on following that trailhead, it will deepen. And I appreciate what Myra and Chiomi have been talking about, about being a real ally, really listening to BIPOC folks, being there and supporting them. Um, and and that that performative aspect hopefully is something that you can acknowledge and see through and maybe even um, get called out on if it is performative and take that in stride. It, I think that the the path to allyship or you know um, liberation in a sense for an ally is one that's worth it, even if it is painful. Yeah, I think about. Uh, what happened over the weekend on Juneteenth uh, at Myra Flynn's performance where, um, you know, she was singing beautifully and there was a beautiful celebration of Juneteenth and somebody interrupted the performance with a Klan's hood on. And I was shocked that very few, if any white people wearing Black Lives Matter shirts stood up and helped escort this person to try not to disrupt the concert. Yeah, I think that there's... um... I think that there's a certain boldness and a certain power to standing up and putting one's body in the way of something like a situation like that. Um, 
But there are so many creative ways to take care of a situation like that without actually maybe escorting the person away. I could visualize surrounding this person in a big circle with maybe white bodies first and then BIPOC people behind, but just creating a space and then all maybe being quiet or not responding or or just kind of letting this person hopefully their neurons settle and if they're getting more violent creating more and more space around them but not letting them um not letting them continue to do what they're doing with with no effect allowing it to continue to be a bystander this is unfractured today we're discussing allyship with three bipoc vermonters chiomi mckibben puja gupta senning and myra flynn myra i want to get your take on this You know, I was obviously there, and you and I haven't talked too much about this, but what was it like for you as someone whose performance was interrupted by trauma? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty hard. I mean, you know, from stage, you kind of have like a bit of an aerial view of what's happening. And what's interesting, Connor, is that I have a a pretty different perspective of what I saw, it sounds like, than than what you did, because, um, you know, what I noticed was that this person came, began to disrupt, somebody grabbed their hood um, and took it off, you know, and you never know what's happening underneath that hood. Are there knives? Are there guns? Are there, you know, are there other things that are happening? So that was pretty scary. And then I did see on the crowd, you know, including like watching some of my own family members who were so triggered by probably the 60s and 70s or like times when these hoods were more prevalent, right? And some of our elders um, stand up and start yelling. And uh, it was a real moment for me on stage where it's like, came here to sing, might have to deescalate a riot. I don't know. And I don't have any training in this in this moment. And what was even scarier was my 17 month old daughter was right there in the front row. And so it was a, it was a really traumatic and horrible moment. I'm trying to figure out, do I sing through this? Do I stop and take a pause? But what was really unsettling was just watching, watching the anger happen. Now, if I were to think of something in retrospect, that's like kind of a little bit of a silver lining in that event is that, you know, now Vermont has a moment of context for what racism can look like when it does feel dangerous and violent. I think a lot of the response I got was like, I can't believe, I just can't believe, I just can't believe. And I'm kind of like, well, what have we all been donating towards, right? It's like, this is, this is what it looks like when this, this kind of stuff happens. So I'm, I'm thankful for those who are feeling colorblind or feeling like racism doesn't exist in Vermont to have a moment of like, yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's still here. Chiomi, do you feel like living in Vermont that you have an obligation to be an expert in BIPOC issues and to have to explain and re-explain when there's trauma in the BIPOC community or when there are things that white people don't understand about BIPOC? I, this is hard. I do feel this way and, but I'm trying not to. I'm trying to not take that responsibility on. Um, but I do feel this huge urge of like wanting to help my um my fellow BIPOC community and just to help them, you know, what I've experienced to make it better for the future. So that way they don't have to experience what I've experienced. So I think there is this motivation in me 
I don't know if it's like, it doesn't, I don't think it's a big like responsibility necessarily, but I think it's just a want to help other BIPOC folks to not go through some of the same traumas that I've gone through. Um, but I'm trying really hard to not feel that responsibility on myself because that's really not fair. I think that's part of why BIPOC, especially here in Vermont, are particularly exhausted is because we are explaining, re-explaining, and then re-traumatizing ourselves. So I'm just curious, like maybe it's for maybe it's for more personal use, but like what you are do, like what steps you are taking to relieve yourself of that responsibility. I am up for suggestions because I am still trying to <laughs> learn. Um, I I find myself trying to step on more committees and more community engagement groups around anti-racism, and I'm trying really hard to learn that I. I don't have to do it all today. Um, so if anyone has any suggestions on how to not take that ownership or to feel responsible, I am, I'm all ears. Myra Pooja, I'll open it up. Do either of y'all have suggestions on how me and maybe other BIPOC kids in rural communities can alleviate ourselves or begin to alleviate this, um, I guess, need to be a wealth of information for white people? Um, yeah, Connor, I think I just, um, for myself, I, I'm trying to do what, what you said, Chiomi, which is just not do as much. I think that's kind of the answer is like self-care, hanging out with other BIPOC folks who, you know, you don't need to explain as much and you can kind of be a little more relaxed, maybe have some shared experience and to take care of, just to take care of myself, to be to be happy, to be vibrant, whatever that looks like, whether or not it's racism work related or not. Myra, do you have any final thoughts on or suggestions on how we alleviate this pressure to be experts on BIPOC issues when none of, I don't all, I don't have a PhD in this stuff and or an advanced degree or a degree in this. So but I feel like sometimes it's expected that I do. So Maya, do you have any suggestions on? Yeah, well, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Like I will say often um, when folks will ask me a question, my new motto these days is um, I did not, I did not get my degree in this. You know, I have my life degree, um, you know, but my only, my only job in this world is to stay black and die. So <laughs> I need, Man. I need you to, um, to go ahead and read a book. You know, sometimes I've said that uh, just when I'm at my wits end and you never know, like, you know, some days I'm up for a teachable moment. And then some days like I have, you know, I mean, I don't know how disgusting this is to say on air, but like sometimes I got like period cramps and I don't want to deal with you. I like, I am a person, I'm a human being, I'm an individual. I'm not an endless resource for you to, uh, or a shortcut, really a shortcut to trying to learn what to do and what not to do. So really we can get to a place where you feel safe and not making a mistake. Really, it's just this giant fear in like, can you validate me so I don't make any mistakes? I don't make any mistakes. So first things first, I just always tell people, I like to tell people, I make mistakes too. You make mistakes. Let's go ahead and be human beings. And the other thing is like with any small business, which is weird that we've become, um, you know, it's been a while since I dealt with this. I just moved back here from LA about four months ago where this was not top of mind. My blackness is always top of mind here. And people are always asking really well-intentioned questions is I delegate. So like I'll build the model 
I'll, uh, you know, I'll do the, the concert at Juneteenth and I'll make sure to make sure like that everybody is calm in those moments that are crazy or I'll, um, I'll make home goings episodes, which we've done here on Brave Little State at VPR. And, and now it's your turn, right? The baton is now passed to you because real success looks like, in my opinion, um, everyone else who is not BIPOC bodied taking the same social, just social risk that I am in this world, because they will never have to take the same physical risk that I will. So if you can at least join me in that, then I think we're going to be all right. That's my colleague, Myra Flynn. Myra, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Connor. See you around the newsroom. Chiomi McKibben, I really appreciate you sharing all of your experiences today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Pooja Gupta-Senning, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Connor. Coming up next, we speak to Professor Catherine Dungy, Chair and Associate Professor of History at St. Michael's College. She's going to explain the community impact of allyship and put this all into context for us. You're listening to Unfractured. I'm Connor Cyrus. This is Unfractured. I'm Connor Cyrus. Today we're discussing allyship. We've heard from a panel of white Vermonters as well as a panel of BIPOC Vermonters. But to help us digest what we've just heard and understand the cultural implications, we welcome Catherine Dungy, Chair and Associate Professor of History at St. Michael's College. Professor Dungy, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Connor. Were there any surprises for you? There were there were a couple. One, um, one, in, one surprise in each group. The surprise, I think, with the white space group was how they approached the idea of performative activism. And it, to me, it, I was surprised at how careful, even in a space where it was supposed to be safe, it didn't sound like they felt safe talking about, you know, using themselves as um, a, an example. It was always pushed off onto, this is what other people do. Kind of thing. Um, and I was kind of surprised with that. I always thought that, you know, when, when the folk get together to talk, that then you know, the ownership comes out, out there. So, I mean, that might have been just me, <laughs> what I would have expected in that space. And then in the BIPOC space, um, it was, again, not really a surprise, but just hearing that there's three people and there were three different ideas of what, what racism means. And so those of us who experience it, we're all experiencing it in different ways. Do you think that the way everybody explained racism has an impact on why there was such um, complications defining allyship? Yes, I think so. Um, If you uh, have a different idea of how the attack is coming at you, you're going to set up your defense in a different way. So, so oh, go ahead. Well, I, yeah, so I, I did hear a lot. It may, then each person's, once we had that idea of what racism was, then um, hearing their responses and how, how each of they, them fit their bodies into those responses, it made sense to me. I'm curious, um, when it comes to allyship, 
Are there basic needs that marginalized and BIPOC communities need that we can all agree upon? Yes. Uh, the thing that I heard actually across, across both groups was this need to listen. Hmm. We need to listen to each other. Um, and to hear, not just listen, but to hear. So when somebody says something, to take that as that person's truth, that is what that person needs at that moment, um, and hear them, and then move from, from that. And that came out of both groups, uh, and and that and I think that that is a, that's a commonness that we that we share. What is the role of a community to acknowledge an imbalance of power? So what what is the role of Vermont in this case of acknowledging that racism exists and that BIPOC and marginalized communities feel that they need allies? It's the listening. It's hearing from those of us who are experiencing the issue and hearing what it is that is hurting us and, and what is painful for us and what works too. Um, and then from our allies, having them step into that space as invited um, instead of just creating a space and assuming that's where we need to be. This is kind of, this is a big question. So <laughs> uh, hopefully you can answer it, but what do we, what, if anything, do we need to see more of from the allies in Vermont? What act, actions still need to be taken to achieve this? Is it still just listening or is there more tangible steps that can be taken? That's a really good question. And the big thing for me is that we need allies that don't have to be told they're allies. You just do it. This is where the, the, the step beyond the performative is. Uh, it's just do it. I, I as, as, a, as a Black woman, will tell you if it's, if you are the, if you're, if that is the, if you are my ally. Um, but you can do that. You can become my ally by just doing things. If it's the right thing to do, then do it. Um, if there is something happening, uh, somebody says something crazy, I don't want to, I don't want to have to be the one to look at you and see if you're going to say something and then see that you, you are comfortable. Well, I'm not comfortable either. So, you know, the, the allies just like think, Listening is a part of it, but then acting on uh, on that space as well. And I think that's what we definitely need up here. There's a whole lot of of um, of bluster, and you know, oh, you know, I can do this. Uh, I'm I'm there for you. But then when the time actually happens, I'm looking around like, whoa, what, 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 what just happened? There's nobody here. Oh, okay. I guess I'm doing this on my own too. We've covered a lot of ground today. You've listened to a lot of conversation. I'm just wondering, do you have any final thoughts on what you heard and advice or suggestions, recommendations, or just final thoughts? (laughs) 
Well, one, I want to go back to a conversation we had early, earlier uh, on the intersectionality and this idea. This is just a continuation of that. It's, you know, for me, this is my lived life. I've lived my entire life in this skin. And so it's just what I do. And all of my reactions are based on how I have lived my life. And, you know, for somebody who, um, is melanin challenged, as I say, uh, they, they have their own, their lives that they have lived their whole lives without melanin and living in with the systemic uh, ideals that that ideas that um, our, our world is built upon because of that. So I think what I heard in this conversation was this idea of how interconnected we are, how much we need each other to advance and to make a better world. Um, I mean, I don't know that we need to go as far as uh, Dr. King did um, in 1963 when he when he said, you know, if, if you have, uh, you know, if, if if you have not discovered something to die for, you have nothing to live for. I don't know that we need to go that far, but I do think we need to find something powerful, something that we can hold on to. All, all across the board, all, all both sides of this issue. We need to find something that we can really um, grab onto and take that and make that our charge for a That's Chair and Associate Professor of History at St. Michael's College, Catherine Dungy. Professor Dungy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Connor. It's a wonderful and much that's it for this installment of Unfractured. This conversation was edited for time, but we will have the full conversations on our website, vpr.org. Our production team includes managing producer Lydia Brown and producer Emily Aiken. Our digital producers are Lodi Reed and Abigail Giles. I'm Connor Cyrus. Be kind, smile, and drink water.